All right. Um, if you've been joining with us, uh, welcome to Chinese Church in Christ South Valley. It's great to see you all this morning. My name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we've been kind of uh, in a series that uh, has been talking about spiritual warfare. And so uh, we are the first for this year. Sorry, we are down our normal um, audio people. So we got to do some adjustments for the people on Zoom. Okay, that's not working. So we're just not going to worry about it. We'll record it anyway. Okay, sorry for the delay. Um, if you've been with us, our church theme for 2024 is trust in God. Very simple. And it's from 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 7, which says, Cast all your anxieties upon you because uh, upon him because he cares for you. And just after that, the next verse talks about how the evil one is a prowling lion that means to drag us down. It's not the only time in the New Testament that you see a, um, a an actual description of the evil one, which we know to be Satan, or the devil. And so last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 6, and what we said was, though our world, from a spiritual warfare standpoint, is actually far more scary than we might think, God equips us with everything that we need when we go through spiritual battles that we might, um, that we might experience in our lives. And so it's a very famous passage in Ephesians chapter 6 that talks about the armor of God. We said that though our world can be scary, though there are many things that we do not always see in front of us, and that part of the evil one's ploy is for us not to think that evil exists and to not care about kind of the, some of the deeper spiritual truths, um, we can be way more aware than we are. And sometimes the, we talk about the quote that ignorance is bliss because then we might think that um, if we don't realize that Satan is attacking us or tempting us in those ways, and we're not aware of that, it can be a nice feeling if we don't have any awareness or understanding of it. And yet, though the world, when we're actually aware of the truth of Satan and of what he does in our lives, though the world can appear to be a much scarier place than we think, God does not leave us defenseless. And that's why the passage about the armor of God is such a famous one in the book of Ephesians. Um, if you've got your Bibles, I want to read uh, from Ephesians 6 this morning. And so we are really only going to focus on one verse, but as always, I want us to get the context of what we're seeing here. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 10 to 14 this morning. That'll be the main passage. So if you've got your Bibles, if you've got your Bible apps, you can turn there. Normally we have it up on the screen. We don't have it today. Apologies for that. We'll be back next week. Um, but let's read Ephesians chapter 6, starting verse 10. And the Apostle Paul, as he writes this, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the and having done all to stand again. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the wisdom that we find from your word. 
Uh, but we live in a world where we are often unaware of how much evil is going on, not just in the world at large, but also in the small ways where we are tempted to live out of our flesh and not according to the Holy Spirit that you've given us when we believed in you. Lord, we know that uh, the ways the evil one likes to tear us down sometimes is as small as in our family relationships or in day-to-day -day conversations. And Lord, as we um, expand our awareness of the realities of spiritual warfare, Lord, I pray that we would cling to the armor of God that you've given us so that we would know, God, that we are not helpless, we are not defenseless. You give us what we need to experience the greatest kinds of victory, maybe even more than we might ever imagine. So, God, I pray that we would have open minds and open hearts to your word this morning. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All right. So, um, we are going to focus on the first part of the armor of God this morning, and that is the belt of truth. Now, um, I thought about going through all the different pieces of armor, but when I started kind of reading up on and studying and thinking about the belt of truth this week, uh, man, like there's so much to say about just this one piece of the armor of God. So it's possible we might continue next week in the others. We haven't thought that far ahead yet. We'll see what Daniel wants to do next week. Um, but today we're going to look at the belt of truth as it's described in verse 13, uh, verse 14. And so we see here how similarly to the prowling lion in 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul describes the darkness that exists in our world um, that comes from Satan as uh, where is it? Uh, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against the physical things, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This all comes from verse twelve, and that's a very challenging. That's a very challenging thing for us to think about. And so, um, when we think about the belt of truth, we're going to ask ourselves: Why does Paul use the word belt? What's the purpose of a belt? And then if it's a belt of truth, we have to understand the word truth and what Paul means by that. And then we're going to finally see what the belt of truth does for us. So what is a belt, what is truth, and how does that help us in our lives? So first, um, why does Paul use the image of a belt to talk about the first piece of the armor of, of God? Um, if you think about the purpose of the belt, we know very simply that it, you know, it's a lot of times it's a fashion statement, but belts are also extremely functional and important, like you're holding your pants up, right? And so um, I, I have come to see this uh, in a unique way as a basketball coach, especially when I pass out uniforms at the start of the season, because what happens is a lot of the uniforms must have come from the 90s because they're in a style that the kids don't like anymore. They want the shorts to be like, all basketball players want their shorts to be short, like they're back in the 80s for some reason, which I think is disgusting, but that's kind of what it is now, right? But these shorts, like, are so big for the kids that, like, they have trouble even, like, keeping them up, like, during the game. And so one thing that, I don't know if you ever do this, you are not allowed to do this, but some kids, because the shorts are too long, in their opinion, they start to roll them up, and that makes the waistband tighter, so then it's like fun, both functional if the drawstring's not like functioning super well, but it's also like their way of being as fashionable as they want because they want the shorts to be shorter for some reason that a kid who grew up in the 90s here does not understand. But that's that's what it is. And so when we had a really strict referee for one of our games, he told some of our girls, you can't roll up your shorts, you have to unroll them. We were like, 
for some of these girls who are so skinny wearing these shorts that were that had to be produced in the 90s, like if they don't roll them up, they might like fall down in the middle of the game. I'm like, that's not okay, right? And so you see, like, it just became a joke amongst our team that we were the team that just has like the sagging shorts all the time, right? Or when the boys who actually have uniforms that we got last year were ordering new girls' names for last year. So that's a good thing. Um, it's like it's something that they enjoy doing, like I don't know, because they think it's funny or it's like something they're not allowed to do at school. But in practice, they might be like sagging their shorts below their waistline. And I'm watching all these kids and I'm thinking, you don't even know because you didn't grow up in the 90s the way I did, the way I do, right? And I'm like kind of scanning the audience. I don't know if there's anyone who fits like Daniel, maybe a little bit. I don't know if there's anyone who fits my demographic, but if you don't know what Jinko is, or Anchor Blue, or Miller's Outpost, if you don't know any of those names, like you do not understand the fashion sense of sagging the way we did in the 90s. And I'm very embarrassed to tell this story, but I'll tell it anyway, just to illustrate the principle of how important a belt is. But as a middle schooler, we all thought it was super cool to sag our shorts very low, and when I went over to my friend's house, because we were carpooling for hockey practice, his mom looked at me and she said, Dan, lift up your shirt. And I was like, no. And she was like, they're that low then, are they? And I had nothing to say and I was just super embarrassed in front of my other friends and teammates who were there. And so I say all this just to illustrate if anyone understands the purpose of a belt, it's us 90s children because if you're going to set your shorts back then, having a good belt that would like keep them up in a fashionable way but below your waistline, it was like super important for us, right? I say all this just to show how functional that belts are, and we understand that, uh, I think, you know, for all of us today. And so that gives us a good understanding of what Paul is doing when he talks about a belt, the belt truth. It is extremely functional for us in day-to-day -day living. If you go to work, you know, if you have a job where you're required to dress semi-formally, you have to tuck in your shirt, like you don't, you, you want to make sure you have a belt with, with, to make complete the ensemble, but also just for the pur purpose of functionality, right? And so it's interesting because when Paul writes about this piece of armor, um, the belt of truth has been actually a, I would say a dynamic translation into English by biblical. You read what Paul wrote in the original language, what he says is, gird your loins with truth. And so it's not actually a belt, but if you, um, when I used to play hockey, we would wear something called a girdle. It's something that could be worn underneath, uh, they have the men, they have the women, it could be worn under, uh, under fancy clothing, it could be worn under a dress. For us, it had slight padding in case we got hit there by a hockey club. In any case, it protects a very important part of your body, right? Because they're probably thinking, why are we, all we're talking about is sagging or like underwear this morning, or what are we even doing here? But we'll get to why this is so important. But what Paul is saying is, if that's like, if what you wear closest like to your body is something that's a piece of protection, then that's really important. And, and so that's why it's gotten translated over time into the idea of the belt. But he literally says, gird your loins, or kind of your, your private areas, in truth. And he's using this as an image to show how important truth is. 
for the people of God. And so in this way, a belt offers protection. It offers, uh, if you think about it, like, I don't know, if your pants fall down in public, you're kind of subjected to a lot of public embarrassment at that point. And so it's functional, it protects you in that kind of way. And so you see this purpose that exists from having, having to wear a belt. And so I think there's, we'll say more about this at the very end, but I think this is why the Apostle Paul starts the section of the armor of God with the image of a belt or something that you are girding your loins with. Yes, there's the breastplate of righteousness, there's the helmet, there's the sword, there's the shield, but he's saying underneath all of that, the first piece of armor that he fits is actually the belt of truth. What is worn closest to your body? What is keeping your keeping your pants up or whatever it might be? That's the first one that he picks. And I think he does that. It's, it's kind of surprising because you might think, well, in the armor of God, like the sword sounds really kind of cool or the shield sounds really interesting or the breastplate of righteousness must be really, like a breastplate is heavy and it protects against a lot of things. But Paul picks the belt of truth first and foremost. And so if that is kind of uh, the way he described it in the original language, is that's kind of the item of clothing you are wearing in battle that is literally closest to your body. What he's saying is this belt of truth is so important. It's the foundation of all of the other pieces of armor that we may get to in future weeks as we talk about. So why does Paul use the image of a belt? It's to show how functional and important it is. But it really sets the it sets the baseline for the other pieces of our armor. So I think we understand that. Like, you know, that was probably way too long an explanation of the importance of belts this morning, uh, with some 90s stories thrown in. Um, but when Paul calls it the belt of truth, or what he literally says is gird your loins with truth before he gets into all the other pieces of armor, then the second thing we've got to talk about is if the, if this piece of armor that Paul's talking about. It's kind of the bit, like the thing that kind of sets the stage for all the others he's going to describe. What do we start with? And we start with the importance of truth. So the first thing that we see in this passage that we wanted to discuss is what is, uh, what, what's a belt? What's the purpose of it? But secondly, it's called, it's been translated over time, the belt of truth. And this is such a foundational thing for our lives. So we have to ask ourselves, what is truth? And what, like, we understand the purpose of the belt, but it's really a question that I think we don't ask ourselves enough when we ask, when we think about the topic of truth. Now, um, sometimes I would ask, like, what's the definition of it? Daniel Dye is probably Googling it right now, so he can give me that, that Google definition. I beat you to it, Daniel. I already wrote it down. So if you go to, if you go to the Google definition of truth, it talks about, like, having the qualities of something that is true. So really what you're defining is the word true, not true. Right? And so um, Google used four, the first four words that came up to define the word true were this. Fact, reality, accurate, or exact. These are kind of the four words that Google used to describe true. Fact, reality, accurate, exact. And so when we think about truth today in our world, one of the challenges that we face now is there are so many truths that we can, quote unquote truths, that we can be influenced by. Many things are very subjective and a matter of uh, just personal opinion, and yet we accept them 
as true in our lives. And so if we're going to ask ourselves, how does the belt of truth actually help us in our lives? We have to have a quick discussion about what truth is and how we know what is actually true. There are things that I know in my heart that I will fight to the death over that I think are true. But if I actually sink to like kind of the depths of them, they're really rooted in my opinion or some kind of truth that I picked up on. If, um, and some of those topics include the best place to buy a Pokeball. Like if you say it's anything other than the Pokeball that's closest to my house on Amadan and Branham, like those are fighting words to me because that one's the best. And people have argued with me, but I know in my heart that is truly the best place you can buy a Pokeball. I see some books coming from this side of the room. We're going to have some conversations later. Okay. Or boba places in the South Bay. I have very high standards. My friend owns a cafe downtown. I still think he makes the best pearl milk tea anywhere. Um, and it's kind of a hidden menu item in his cafe. And so most of the places that people like to go, I just, I have lots and lots and lots of judgment. Most people like, how many of you, for example, how many of you like TPT here in the mall? Okay. Or even, okay, here's the judgmental side of me. The Cupertino one compared to the Oakridge one is far better. Okay. People are shaking their heads at me still. That's fine. Okay. Now, I have found that I am in the minority when it comes to TPT. I think it's mid, but most people really like it. And so, yeah, see, more reactions, right? The point of all this is I have things in my mind. I'm getting thumbs down now, so we get pushed off the stage. I, like um, I have things in my mind that I know for myself to be true that I feel very passionate about. But in the end, it's really a matter of my own. Now, that's fine when it comes to places to eat or places to get boba. But when we think about matters of law or politics or different things, uh, different social justice causes in our world, it is very easy for us to see that as a world, as a society, we are all not on the same page when it comes to what is true and what is not. And why I think that is, because the idea of truth, I think, is still many times often rooted in our opinion, instead of actually asking, What's fact, what's reality, what's accurate, or what is exact. And so when Paul talks about the belt of truth, we really got to understand what truth is. Right? Um, in our world today, I think uh, if we could charitably describe it from a, um, from a good desire to be understanding of other people who might have different viewpoints than our own, um, a what's called a postmodern way of thinking uh, you might have heard this phrase where people will say, there is no absolute truth. Believe whatever you want to believe for yourself, and as long as that works for you, and it doesn't harm me or harm other people, then that's fine. Just live your own truth. Okay? There is no absolute truth. The problem with the statement that there is no absolute truth is say, to say there is no absolute truth is an absolutely true statement. If we think about it logically, what you're saying is, it's not that there isn't any absolute truth, but what someone who says there's no absolute truth, what they're really saying is anyone can, can define truth for themselves, however they might want. And that's, that leads us to arguments, that leads us to political disagreements, that leads us to moral disagreements in many ways. 
And if we're going to ask ourselves what is really true, we have to stop and ask ourselves, what is it based on? And I think you can get very chicken and egg, like circular thinking, when we try to define what truth really is. When Paul uses the word truth uh, here in Ephesians, it is one of 44 occurrences that this word, the Greek word for truth, was used in the New Testament. And the book that uses the word true the most is the book of John. And as I was kind of going through, there's 14 mentions of the word true or truth in the book of John. That makes sense because in the book of John of the four Gospels, we have the greatest kind of catalog of Jesus's conversations with his disciples. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though they're extensive, have their different purposes. But John features the most conversations between Jesus and his disciples. And so in reading through a lot of the verses about truth in the book of John this week, when I was kind of doing a word study on this word. Jesus says in John 8, 31 and 32, as he's having a conversation with the Pharisees, he says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And we've probably heard this verse, and as always, we need to know the context of what's happening here. And Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, and what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is though, um, they grew up with a Jewish background. They had more access to the temple than other people. Their religious upbringing and kind of family ties to the Jewish religious system did not necessarily mean that they understood the truth about the kingdom of God. In fact, there were many people who had more access to the temple in Jesus' time who would use that to kind of feel superior to others or to kind of hold moral or religious expectations over others. At this time, and Jesus is trying to show the Jewish people who grew up going to temple, he's trying to say, when you understand all that I've already been teaching about the kingdom of God, that's when you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There are a lot of people who have their own versions of truth, what they believe about politics, the economy, sexuality, marriage, whatever it might be. And I struggle to see how people who are kind of holding on to what they believe is true is feeling accepted. And if truth, like deep down, if we if it's really actually challenging for us to know, like how is something objectively true when we have so many subjective kind of beliefs that get in the way of that? Um, I don't actually have a great answer to say, how do we know something is actually objectively true when I realize how biased I am in a lot of my beliefs? I grew up going to church. I was taken to church as a young child. There's only been small parts of my life where I wasn't going to church and kind of hearing the word of God. So I have to honestly say that I am biased when it comes to my belief in God. And I think we all are as humans. But what draws me to Jesus' words when he says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, is who is the source of these words, and who is doing the teaching. Because earlier in the book of John, you will know Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And what he was doing is he was giving a foreshadowing about he, how he was going to give his life for the sins of the world, die on the cross, and he rose again with, and rise again on the third day. That is the symbolism of him saying, destroy this temple, I will rebuild it. Right? So it's a bit of an apologetic kind of like answer that I think we have to turn to when we think about why Jesus 
has kind of an exclusive and holistic claim on truth and why we want to believe that. It's why later in John 14, 6, very famously, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is all in the context of Jesus teaching about truth and the truths in the kingdom of God. And I think that's a really important piece of our understanding when it comes to the idea of truth. If everyone has their own bias when it comes to thinking about what is actually true, I'm more inclined to listen to the words of Jesus. Why? Because he predicted his own death. He predicted his own resurrection. You see this, in, not just in, in uh, biblical accounts, but when you read stories of history, you see Jesus' claims of rising again on the third day. And where most skeptics would dis disagree with believers is whether he actually rose again. Now, I say this to the youth group all the time. You will never find a credible historical source or historian or history, history professor who will ever claim that there was a man named Jesus, who wouldn't claim that there was a man named Jesus who lived on this earth, who claimed he was the Son of God, claimed that he would die again, claimed that he rose again on the third day. This is rooted in the account of many, many witnesses, both biblical and extra biblical. And that's where we get, I think, as close as possible to the idea something that is in fact reality, accurate, or exact. And so the fact that Jesus predicted his own death and rose again, and if, if we've done the research and the reading to think that that is something that actually can be true, that is why I'm very inclined to believe the words of Jesus when he says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Because I, there are so many ideologies that exist in our world today, so many political beliefs that people think is the exact way that should govern our society. And yet, when you have conversations about many of these things, I don't get a sense of freedom from a place of belief, from where it comes from. And that's where I think Jesus and being able to understand the fact that he claimed that he was the Son of God, and it was in fact demonstrated in truth when he died on the cross and rose again, makes it easier for me to trust what Jesus says is true, versus what we believe is true throughout our world in a variety of different ways. And so uh, we said last week, um, in the presence of this spiritual warfare crisis, that it is not easy to be a Christian today, especially in California, especially in Silicon Valley. And that's why having an understanding of what truth actually is, not what we've been told it is, or not what we think it is for ourselves, but like rooted in what we see and what Jesus taught, I think is so important for us to actually understand the kingdom of God and then feel like we are truly set free. If we in our Christian beliefs, it feels like work, it feels like a burden, I have to go to church, I have to read the Bible, I have to pray, and if I don't, I'm letting someone down, I would say that's probably not the version of the kingdom of God that Jesus is trying to bring. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that Jesus wants us to take very seriously in our righteousness and in our obedience. Uh, we'll potentially get to righteousness next week in the breastplate of righteousness. But to have an understanding of the truth of the kingdom of God, I really believe Jesus' words in John, where he says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what does that actually look like then? If a belt has this purpose of like being something that's really important for us, Physically, like, you know, uh, so our pants don't fall down, right, as we said. And so if, if Paul uses this image of the belt of truth, 
and we've had at least somewhat of an understanding of truth. And we're going to quote John 8, 31, 32, then we might ask, well, how does it truly set us free? And so um, what this means is there are so many voices, I think, that want to guide us in many different ways that we listen to. Voices of family, voices of friends, voices of culture, expectations, especially uh, and probably most often even from ourselves, that kind of can weigh us down time and time. And for a lot of my life, I have felt the weight of those expectations. As the oldest of three kids, I always felt like I had to be the example for my younger brothers. Um, I always had, uh, it was built into me, both from, I think, just how God created me, but also how my parents raised me as an oldest child. And always, I was always a very strict rule follower. And if I don't, like, follow the rules, then I start to feel, like, you know, like a, a sense of weight upon my shoulders. Like, it's so bad that... In movies, like if I'm watching a movie and someone does something that's like really cringy or like that they're not supposed to do, it's like it's a movie, it's make believe, it's written. I'm still like I feel my blood pressure like kind of rising. I'm like they didn't they didn't follow the rules. Like what's wrong with them? You know. And so that's something that I've felt for a lot of my life. A lot of expectations that I would keep upon myself as well. Um, I remember a particular conversation that I had with a friend um, at my previous church when I was in seminary down in Southern California. And at the time, my main area of my uh, my church internship uh, was to uh, was to lead a Bible study for the college group. And I was sharing with my friends; they were asking me, like, "How's the college Bible study going?" I was like, "Well, it's pretty good, but you know, we have a lot of like, there's a lot of students who come, but then there's a lot of who are flaky and who might say they're coming and who might like back out last minute or who might not pay attention when we're doing the Bible study." And I was just kind of sharing some of the some of the realities of it. And one of my friends like said, I don't think they respect your authority as a leader. And in that moment, I was so deeply hurt by my comment. I was like, what? Like, but I'm their leader, and like this is something I take super seriously because like I'm studying to be a pastor, and it's like, you know, like how can they not like I like I kind of knew, knew it to be true in my mind, but when it was said verbally, I was like very upset that that had been said. And the reason for that is because I have a picture, my own truth in my mind, of what I'm supposed to look like as a leader, of what the followers are supposed to do in accordance to the leader, and I am holding myself and everyone else to those expectations. Okay? So now, in today's day and age, if someone were to say to me, hey, damn, the kids in youth group, they don't respect you, I'd be like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> See? And they laugh because, like, you know, now, honestly, like, it's a bit of a joke, and I, I love all of them, and, like, I actually think, like, you know, uh, I, I don't think that's actually true. I think if you're a parent and you walk in at certain times, it will give off the appearance of that being true in many ways. But I don't think the difference is whether, like, they're actually listening to me or not. That gives me the freedom to laugh and joke about, like, ah, like you know, when I go and coach basketball, it's amazing because, actually listen, and it's a new feeling that I'm not always used to from, like, Friday nights. I've seen a lot of laughter this, where we laugh at things that are true many times. Um, and uh, I was listening to a song this week that I think relates to this topic of truth. And um, if you're a fan of Casting Crowns, there's been a uh, Christian group that's been around for a while. They have a really well-known song that's called The Voice of Truth. And in the, in the verses, it talks about kind of being tossed about by the waves of the ocean, feeling kind of lost in like the sea of, of different voices. 
And then the second verse in, in Youth Sunday School, we've been talking about David and 1 Samuel for a while. And so it talks about David going up against Goliath and how scary that must have been. Um, but the chorus of the song, basically, after having doubts laid out through the verses of the song, the chorus of the song, if you're familiar with it, it goes like this. It says, but the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. The voice of truth says, this is for my glory. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. And what I have come to learn from like more than a decade now of being in ministry is that if someone came to me, and even if they were being like serious about it, and they said, hey, Dan, your youth kids don't respect you or your authority. Like, I might wonder like what's going on in, in their mind or why they might say that. But really, what I've come to learn over time is that for me, as a child of God, who I am and how God sees me is not dependent on whether I can do my job well or if I hold a certain level of authority within the kids that are a part of my youth group. Now, 15 years prior, a version of me having that conversation with my friends did not understand that. And that's because there was a lot of insecurity I had in my relationship with God, where at least what I was saying and how I reacted to my friend who said that was out of like, out of just like sheer kind of disbelief and also frustration. What I'm communicating then is I'm saying like who I am is tied up in like what kind of job I do as a college ministry intern that works 10 hours a week and is paid like only three digits and taking it way too seriously at that when we know who we are in Christ, if we believe that Jesus is our Savior, if we have a living relationship with him, there is no voice in this world, no matter how hurtful it might be, that can stand against the voice of our God and who he says that we are as his children. Now, I get that that's way easier said than done to believe and to actually but the freedom that I have felt from not feeling like I have to meet someone's expectations about whether this group over here behaves or not on a Friday night really has been truly freeing for me as a follower of Jesus. And I can believe Jesus' words that when he says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so this is why I think Paul starts with the belt of truth as the first piece of the armor. And what we see, if we read on in the, in the verses, we see several different uh, um, images of the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. It's very interesting that Paul starts with the, the word, with the belt of truth. A breastplate is a very kind of strong piece of armor that protects you from a lot of, um, from a lot of attacks. Um, when it's shoes of peace, I'm sure it's not like shoes like, you know, like Vans or Adidas or something, but it's like actually like the combat boots that soldiers would wear during this time. And then there's the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Of all the pieces of the armor of God, Paul starts with the belt of truth. And remember, he didn't actually say belt. He said, gird your loins with truth. Like that's the deepest translation of it. I really believe what he's saying is all of these other pieces of armor 
that are rooted in righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, spirit. Those are nice words that we study theologically or in church or in Bible study. But if they're not true, what does it matter? And that is why Paul starts with the belt of truth when he talks about the armor. And so for us, if we're going to, if we're going to experience the, um, the spiritual darkness that exists in our world, that I think is way more prevalent in our lives than we might think. That's what Paul's trying to get, get across in verses 11 and 12, and also in 1 Peter chapter 5. A lot of times we can see that and realize and kind of come to a conclusion that we might be scared of how powerful Satan is. And make no mistake, the evil one is powerful. But we are not powerless in the fight against, in the spiritual fight against the evil one. God gives us the armor of God that we can put on so that we can be equipped, that we can believe the truth of who God says that each of us is, and that that can set us free. So I think that's why Paul starts with the belt of truth. And so um, all of this uh, all of these all of these uh, images of the armor that we see later that are very powerful, the sword, the shield, the combat boots, the breastplate, uh, the helmet, all of these pieces of armor, they all have to be rooted in the truth of who Jesus is. And then therefore, what Jesus says about each of us. And so hopefully, like, I know it's a funny story about, like, talking about whether the youth group listens to me or not, but Hopefully you can see like the mental and spiritual kind of journey that I've experienced in that over many years of ministry. I can realize how much I would take things super seriously and think that all the, the, the end result was up to me and that that kind of swing God's favor like towards me as a child of God in some way. It was a faulty belief that I think as a part of the spiritual warfare we experienced that Satan wanted me to experience. But the good news is that God doesn't leave us alone. He gives us his armor so that we can know the actual truth, so that that can set us free. And I believe that when we know that truth, we can grasp our church theme very well this year. That we can trust God, that we can cast our anxiety that we might experience upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. And that was demonstrated most clearly on the cross. And that is how we can know that Jesus really did, it really was an authority of truth. And that that truth can set us free. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who gave us your son, Jesus Christ, so that, God, we don't have to think about our identity uh, in the way that the world might say is true, but, God, that we can trust in your great love for us. And God, that when we put our faith in you, we can trust that your Holy Spirit is with us, leading and guiding us, leading us into the truth of who we are, and setting us free to love those in our lives, and to love this world in a way that love is oftentimes severely lacking. So, God, we thank you for the, the truth we can uh, just gain from your word. And I pray, God, that um, as we believe these things, God, that it will truly set us free. So as we sing this last song together, God, I pray that we can... Just saying of the goodness of what it means to know you, and that that is what truly sets us free. We love you. We pray this in Jesus.